know for me when I've been around the world on mission trips, it's like I know I'm supposed to be there. I know, like I'm supposed to, when I went to India, I remember getting off the plane, I'm like, one of us is not like the rest. It's just as I looked around. And I remember going to dinner with the, the, the host family, and I, I remember sitting down, and I'm like, ah, no one's supposed to be here. Uh, and I, when I sat down Indian style at a table, I'm like, this, this isn't how I do it back home. And then they brought the meal out. They brought a big thing of rice and a big thing of uh, yellow stuff. It, I think it was chicken. I'm not really sure what it was. And they began to uh, eat, but they had no utensils. And I was like, man, I, I, like you got chopsticks, you got something, uh, it, but nothing. And so we begin to eat, but we could only eat one right-handed. I, I'm not very uh, good with either hand, and so uh, we started eating right, right-handed. And like they just kind of take the rice and the chicken, and they kind of mush it all together. I don't know if you've ever been to India, uh, and they, they just use one hand. And they shovel it in as fast as they can shovel it in. And, and it's spicy. Like, that's not a food you're supposed to shovel in fast. It's just not. Uh, and so think of that. A- any place that you've ever been that you just felt out of place, but yes, you're supposed to be in the place. The word is alienation. The word alienation means this. A state or experience of being isolated from a group or an activity to which one should belong or to which one should be involved. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. He's going to talk about we all are aliens. He uses that word in this passage. And he's going to walk us through, and what he's been doing is walking us through, hey, you've been alienated, but Christ has done something to include you into where you have always thought you were meant to be. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, there's eternity written on the hearts of man. And so all of us long for eternity. Believer or unbeliever, there's this angst in our hearts. And Paul is going to tell us and address this to us this morning. And so we're going to look at two things this morning, three things this morning. Our alienation, then we're going to look at our new identity, and then we're going to look at what our new identity gives us. It gives us a new dwelling place. We'll see that in the passage. So let's look at our alienation. Remember, that's what Paul's been talking about through chapter 1 and half of chapter 2. He's saying, hey, before the foundation of the world, God called you to himself. And so Paul's been writing about this idea that you didn't belong somewhere, but now you do belong somewhere. And now he's going to ask us, what does that look like to be unified? Like we, if we're all believers in here, then there has to be a unity with all of us. Now he's going to talk to the Jews and the Gentiles. Like that's the primary audience who Paul is talking about, the Jewish people and the Gentiles. We've looked at this before. The Jews hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. But all of a sudden, the gospel message went to the Jews and went to the Gentiles, which then reconciled the two to become one. And so in that reconciliation, something had to happen. The the Jewish people had to let go of some traditions, and the Gentiles had to hang on to some traditions, and vice versa. They had to be reconciled. They had to become one body. I've been thinking about this for us here at Powell's Chapel. 
And for us here in this community, God is calling us to be unified. It's sad to me that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning. But yet God is calling all believers to be unified, and where is our unity? And I don't just mean black and white. I don't just mean color of our skin unified. I mean there is a segregation in the churches of, there's this thing called traditional worship. There's this thing called contemporary worship. There's this thing called gospel worship. Well, when we get to heaven, there will be unified worship. There's no such thing as traditional worship or contemporary worship in heaven. Do you know that? There's no such thing as English worship in heaven. There is a unity in heaven, but what we are doing and what Paul is calling us to is to be unified today. Let's not wait to heaven. So how does that happen? Paul tells us how we need to do that. And what does he say? He says this in the first verse of chapter 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember. Therefore, if you ever see the word therefore, this is the easiest hermeneutic study you'll ever have. If you ever see therefore, therefore says, what is therefore, therefore? It points us back to what the writer just talked about. So if you ever see the word therefore, if you're reading or studying and you start off with therefore, don't keep reading forward. Go back and read what the writer had just said. So what has Paul been talking about? Paul's been talking about where they had come from. And he says it again. Remember where you've come from. Verse 11. Therefore... Remember that at one time the Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcised by what is called circumcised. What he's saying is these two people, the Jews and the Gentiles, again, like I said at the beginning, they hated each other. And so they would name call each other. This is a way that they would make fun of one another through their circumcision. So this is a way that they would tease one another or poke fun at one another about their circumcision. So we can already see there's hostility. And Paul says, don't forget, you the Gentiles and you the Jews made fun of one another. But remember where you come from. And now he's going to list where they come from. He's going to address us, the Gentiles. He's going to talk to us about our alienation and where we had come from. And he says five things about our alienation. Don't forget this about, this is true for all of us in this room this morning. We need a new identity. We need a new unity. But it comes out of being reminded of where we come from. We've been alienated is what Paul says. Therefore, that at one, one time you the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision which is made of the flesh by hand. Remember these five things, Paul says. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and with God in the world. So our alienation does five things to us, all of us. And Paul says, don't ever forget this about your alienation. The first one Paul says is this. What does he say? The first thing is this. Don't forget that you were what? Separated from Christ. 
See, our alienation from God is due to a separation from Christ. Our alienation from one another, if we're not believers, is, starts with Jesus. So don't ever forget that there was one time in your life and in my life that I was separated from Christ. Again, because I was separated from Christ, I had this whole other identity that Paul talked about. We once walked in what? The desires and the flesh and the passions of the world. He just told us that in chapter 1. You see, because of my separation from God, I have what? A love for the world. Don't forget that. As you sit here this morning, there was a time, if you're a, belie- unbelie- if you're a believer, that you love the world more than you love God. And then he says this, not only were we Christless with, without Christ, we are what we would call stateless. We had no place to be. We had no city. We had no dwelling place. Right? Is that not what he says? He said you were separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth. Of Israel. Well, if you remember back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was about God's chosen people, the Israel, the Israelites, the Jews. You see, the Jews had a state or a, a place that they always called home. Gentiles, we had none of that. We didn't have that. We didn't have a commonwealth. Our commonwealth was the love of the world. Like we were not a part of God's chosen people. That's the Old Testament. God's Chosen people. And so alienation causes us to be without Christ, without a state or a place to be. And then the third thing is this. Strangers, he says. You were strangers or you were friendless. God's word tells us that we were enemies of God. We were not friends with God. And God was not friends with us. If Romans is true and Romans is accurate, we've, the wages of sin is death. Who's the one that gives us death? Is God the Father. Well, the someone that wants to give us death does not equate to me a deep friendship. If you're my friend and you want to kill me, let's not be friends, all right? But that's what, that's what he's saying. You, you, were no long, you weren't friends with God. You weren't friends with the Jews. You weren't really friends with one another. Paul tells us that again throughout his epistles. When we love the world, we, we, we want to have competition with one another. Like, we really aren't friends. Unbelievers, I know there's a level of friendship, but at the end of the day, unbelievers are going to get theirs. Are they not? Like, the, the, when you look at the world, the world operates with a ladder system. I'm going to step on you to achieve, 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 achieve. So we can say we're friends, but at the end of the day, are we Really? Paul tells us that. He tells us you fight and bicker because you do not have. You quarrel amongst yourselves because you don't really have a love for one another, is what he tells us. So we're without Christ in our alienation. We're without a, a, dwell, a, a place to dwell. We're without friends. And the last two are the saddest for me in our alienation. The fourth one, he says this. You were strangers of the covenant of the promise. Having what? No hope. Have you ever been hopeless before? Have you ever felt the feeling of hopelessness before? Like, 
For us, church, we may feel hopelessness momentarily, but for unbelievers that aren't a part of the gospel message, a part of the church, they have a continual hopelessness. The word hope means this. A feeling or an expectation or a desire for a certain thing to happen. You see, as believers, our hope is that one day we spend eternity with God forever and ever. Is that not our hope this morning? Like, do you not have that hope this morning? Like, man, I long for the day that I'm in heaven worshiping God. Now, I don't want to get there today, but I have this expectation, this hope, this desire that one day I'm going to be in the presence of God apart from all of sin, worshiping God forever. That's my hope. Well, Paul says, as unbelievers, we have no hope. Think about that for a moment. To have no hope in anything. And then he says this, the last one. We're Christless to begin with. He bookmarks it with the Trinity. He says we're Christless, as separated from Christ. And goes all the way to what? In our alienation, we have no hope. And what? We are what? Without God. That's our alienation. Like if unbelievers are going to die today, they die this way. They die without Christ. They die without a place to belong. They die without friends. They die with no hope. And they die without God. And that's their eternity forever and ever. That's what makes hell, hell. Not some devil with a pitchfork and horns standing at a gate with with fire behind him. No, what makes hell, hell is this eternal separation from God forever and ever 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 and ever. And Paul says, be reminded that's all of us this morning. Apart from Christ, all of us this morning have been alienated from heaven, from all of eternity, and our eternity is destined to us to spend it that way in hell forever and ever. Again, I love this word in the Bible. Just like last week in verse 4, the word but is a sweet word in the Bible. Like, thank God again that Paul doesn't stop in chapter 2, verse 12. Like, thank God he didn't just stop there. Hey, that's, that's, Man, that's the lot you have. Like, could you imagine if this is where he stops? Like, here you are. Apart from Jesus, here, here you are. But he says this. But now. Is that not promising to begin with? Oh, but, but, but. No, it's this way, but there's another way is what Paul says. But what? But now in Christ, he says it this way. This is Todd's version. But now everything changes. Everything changes. You no longer have to be Christless. You never have to be stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. You don't have to be that way in Christ Jesus. The moment that you placed your hope and faith in Jesus, but Jesus changed everything. And what did Jesus change? He changed two things. He now changes our identity And he's going to change our dwelling. Well, how does he change our identity? He does this through reconciliation. He says this, but now in Christ, 
who once were far off, that's us, the Gentiles, are made near. The Jewish people would say to the Gentile people, you're way over there because you're not chosen. We are the chosen people. So you're out there. You're the ones that are far off. We're the ones that are near. And now Paul says, no, you that were far off have been brought near the same way the Jewish people are near. By what? By the blood of Christ. You see, everything changes at the cross. Amen? Everything. Because of the blood of Christ, everything changes. What changes? It says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down the flesh that divides the wall of hostility. You see, because of the work of Christ on the cross, the, the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles has been broken. The hostility has been broken. If they remember where they came from, both parties. But it's because of Christ and what Christ has done, not because they were chosen, not because they were far off, but because they've been brought near together in the blood of Christ. And this is how they're brought near, it says in verse 15. <clears throat> what did Christ do at the cross? At the wall of hostility has been broken unity has been made how has it been made he tells us in verse 15 the first thing that we see is what by abolishing the law of the commandments now when i first read this i thought wait 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 paul did you miss what jesus told us in matthew chapter 5 let's turn over to matthew chapter 5 Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount how to become kingdom citizens. And he says this in verse uh, 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Well, wait, Paul, you just told us in chapter 2, verse uh, uh, 15, that the blood of Christ abolishes the law. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ said he didn't abolish the law and Paul said he did abolish the law? If you look into it deeper, it's simply this. That there was a a moral law that the Jewish people held. That, That was morality. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees had 633 laws of morality. It was their moral compass was the law. It wasn't their salvation compass. It was their moral compass. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to what? To fulfill the law. So what is he coming to fulfill? He's coming to fulfill the ceremonial law, not the moral law. The ceremonial law was this, that there had to be a sacrifice that was made for sinners through blood. That's what the whole ceremonial law in the Old Testament. That there was this sacrificial system that had to come. And Paul says, He came to do away with the moral and to fulfill the sacrifice. Is that not what he just told us in a few words? That through the blood of Christ, we've been made one. So the first thing that Jesus does through our reconciliation is he does away with moral law. What what he's saying is, what, what Paul is saying is, it's not about your righteousness. It's not about your goodness. It's not about the things that you can do. Be reminded of the finished work of the blood of Christ. 
He has done for you what you could not do for yourself and make a sacrifice that covers your sins forever and ever and ever and ever. Therefore, the moral law is broken. Amen? Like, thank God we don't live under the moral law. Anyone else? I need some amens. Like, let me say it again. Thank God we don't live under the moral law anymore because if the moral law we still lived under, we would have to continually make these sacrifices, make these penance ongoing for all of eternity. And what the finished work of Christ did was to do away with that law and say, I've now come to fulfill the ceremonial law. All is accomplished with what I've done on the cross. It does away with it all. God fulfills the moral law by keeping the, the, the ceremonial law. Do you see that? God's finished work has accomplished the moral law by keeping with the ceremonial law. The ongoing pouring out of Christ's blood all day, every day. That's the forgiveness of our sins. It's the on-pouring of God's blood. Like, I need God's blood today just as much as I did when I was 18 when I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. I, I needed that. I needed that law. I need that ongoing. The day that Christ woke me from the dead, poured his blood on me, I need that just as much today as I did that day. That's the ongoing work of Christ on the cross for us. Do we see that as believers? God's ongoing work through Jesus in your life. Do you remember, is what Paul is saying. You see, when we remember the ongoing work of Christ, then we have grace and peace with other people. Like if God is going to continue to pour out his love on me, therefore my response to that is I must continue to pour that love out on other people. So that's the first thing that reconciliation through the blood does. <clears throat> it abolishes the law. The second thing it does is this. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. So it abolished the law and the commandment expressed in the ordinance that he, what he created in himself, what? A new man. So not only does, is the law fulfilled, but because the law is fulfilled, now through the work of Christ, we are a new people. That's what it says that he now has created a new humanity. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. Like because of the work of Christ, there's either unbeliever or believer. Like everyone on the planet, all seven billion of us, fall into two categories. We either know Jesus or we don't know Jesus. And so what he is saying is, what I've come to do is create a new humanity, a new place that's the believers, that those that are apart from me are not a part of, but I'm calling them to be a part of that. And when you come to be a part of the new humanity, there must be unity because of being reminded of where we come from. And so he creates a new race, if you will. We are God's workmanship, all that are believers. We were not once God's workmanship, but because of the finished work of Christ and him calling us from death to life makes us his workmanship. Therefore, it says it this way in Corinthians, you are a new what? New creation. 
You are a new race. You're a new person. You are new persons. And it doesn't stop there. You see, we look at the Old Testament and see that God had created many nations. It wasn't just the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, was it? There was many nations. And so God had already made many nations. And so what is different about this new nation in the New Testament, you and me? What is this new creation, this new humanity that he's created? It says it in verse 16. He made it a new man in the place of the two, so that by making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. Not only does he create a new race, but he creates a new race for himself. Amen? Like he doesn't just say, hey, you're a new creation and pushes us in the corner and leaves us to our own. He says, not only am I going to create this, but I'm creating you for myself. So we're a new creation, a new race for God. That's what our reconciliation with Jesus does. It gives us, he's going to say it here in a moment, it gives us through God, through Jesus, access to God. Is that not what he says? He says that you might be reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. He came, verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we would both what have access. Circle that word in your Bible. You see what the finished work of the cross does for us is gives us access. This is an old, uh, a old Hebrew word, meaning that the only way to get to God was through, to have access with someone that would open the door to the chamber of the king for you. You and I could not go up to the king's door, knock on it, and open the door ourselves. We needed someone to go with us to the door of the king and him knock and him open the door for us to allow us to get in. You and I could not have access to the king, that's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, without the work of Jesus Christ. And so the work of Jesus Christ says to us, your alienation is done away with because now you are no longer aliens, but you have access to God through Jesus Christ. Amen? That is a sweet word. Without Jesus, we have no access to God the Father. And so he accomplishes his work to making us a new identity, a new nation, to have access to God, that God would be our Father. And then what happens? So he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just give us this new identity. He doesn't just give us new daughtership or sonship. He then says this. He then invites us into the kingdom. You're now a king or you're now a son or daughter of the king of the world, the king of the universe. And in that, he doesn't place us outside the kingdom. It says it this way. There's a new dwelling for us in verses 19 through 22. So then, after having access 
and one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer what? Strangers and aliens. You never go into the kingdom feeling out of place. In the kingdom of God, you will never feel out of place, is what that verse is saying. You're no longer an alien. You're no longer a stranger. You think think the prince of the kingdom feels out of place? You think the prince, there's anywhere the prince can't go or the princess can't go in the kingdom? No. Do you think, I don't know about how y'all did it, but growing up how we did it, we had the big boys table and the little kids table. And I thought, man, I can't wait to get to the big boy table. It was the same food, but it just felt different. That little ratty table on the side, I'm like, come on. I mean, I'm 19 years old, still sitting at the little boy table. Uh, Well, what's going on here? But that's not how it is in the kingdom of God. We sit right next to the king. And all that is his, he tells us, is now ours. There's nothing that the king holds back from us. But if we're aliens and we're strangers, does the king not hold back? He does. And now, because of the work of Christ, We're no longer aliens or strangers. We have access to this new dwelling place. There is no more want. All that we need, the king will provide us. Now, I'm not saying all that we want, the king provides us. But all that we need, the king provides us. The psalmist says it this way. My king owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills, and it's all his at his disposal for our good blessing. And that that changes things, does it not? To think in this moment that, man, I have access to all that God has control over. That doesn't make it going to mean we're going to be rich. That's not the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that. But man, I no longer have a need because my greatest need has been accomplished at the work of Christ. Amen? So he says this in verse 19. You're no longer aliens or strangers, but you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints. And the saints of old. Abraham, Noah, Daniel, David, Peter, Paul, all the great saints, we are now one with them. We are no longer strangers to them. We are citizens with them. We are equals with them, is what that word says. And members of the household of God. So the first thing that changes is our dwelling place. We now dwell in the city of God. We are now citizens of God's kingdom everything changes not only that but i think the next one is more beautiful than the first so not only that are you now part of this god city this new kingdom you have a new citizenship with the saints and the members of the household of god but what you're part of the household of god 
man, that means we're part of his family. No longer were we just part of the city, but now we're part of the family. Like, that does not, like I can move to Murfreesboro and be part of the city. But if I move to your house and you start taking care of me, I become part of your family. That, that changes things. Any takers? Just kidding. Right? So he's saying, I'm moving you into the city, and not only am I moving into the city, into the inner gates, but now I'm going to move you all the way to the kingdom, the household of God. That's the reason we get to call him Abba, Daddy, Father. That's the reason we get to be brothers and sisters. That's the way we get to be co-heirs with the king, co-heirs with Christ, is because he invites us and brings us to be part of his family. And it doesn't stop there. It says in verse 20, what is he doing all this for? What is he bringing us into the city for? What is he bringing us into his family for? Verse 20, to be built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus is building for himself, and he is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The last thing he does in our reconciliation, he invites us to the city, he invites us to the kingdom, and now he makes us to become the temple of God. Like the temple of God. Think of the temple of God in the Old Testament. Where, where was the presence of God in the Old Testament? The temple. And now all of a sudden, he's saying, I'm inviting you into the city, I'm inviting you into the kingdom, and I'm going to build you together to be the temple of God where my dwelling resides. Like the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is building for himself a temple that he wants to dwell in, and now you and I are his dwelling place. Man, crickets, for real? Like the spirit of the living God now dwells in each one of you and me. Amen? Does that not change things? I mean, think for a moment. The living God, if you're a believer, is in you this very moment. Wow. Think about that. Everywhere you go, God is in you. He doesn't go beside you. He doesn't go in front of you. He didn't go behind you. He goes in you, with you, wherever you go. And then what is he doing? He's saying, not is it just individually am I building in each of you bricks that I want to dwell in? I now want to take all of you to build the ultimate temple. It's called what? The church. You see, that's why this building is just a building, it's not the church. You and me, we could gather together in the middle uh, of the road out there. We would still be what? The church. Because the Spirit of God is dwelling in each of us. Where we go, the church goes with us. And where we gather, the church gathers. So take this building, but you could never take the church. Because the church is now in us, the dwelling place of God the Father. That changes everything. And God is building for himself. He's calling together in ecclesia, the called out ones, to be the body of Christ, the temple of God where his dwelling is at. 
Does that not change everything for us? And so there has to be unity with us. There has to be unity. You see, when the builder builds a house, the brick that goes on top of the other brick can't say, no, man, that's uncomfortable. Get off me. Think about that for a moment. Like, here, here's the mace, and the mason's putting brick by brick by brick, and all of a sudden he picks up the brick. Nah, man, that, that color brick just doesn't jive with me. That's a little bit too red. It's a little bit too white. It's a little bit too this. It, it doesn't really like this. No, the, the mason says, nope, I'm taking you, and I'm putting you exactly where I want you. Apart from being contemporary, traditional, white, Black, red, orange, rich, poor, Greek, Hebrew, it doesn't matter. The mason, God, is taking each of us individually and building for himself a temple that we don't get to say, nah, man, I don't want to be there. Put me on the other side of the house. Nope, God said, nope, I want you right here. And in our act of obedience, we say, yes, we submit to wherever he puts us. And so for whatever reason, God saw fit to take these 60 bricks and build this part of his temple. And I believe there's more that God wants to put on top of us and around us to continue to grow this part of his body in this neighborhood, in this area of the world. Like God is not through with us. God is not done with this side of the temple. How do I know that? Because he keeps bringing more and more and more and more bricks in to our neighborhood to be selected by him, to be placed with us. And we'll have to be willing to die to some things for us, the kingdom of God, to continue to advance. Amen? Because God is building a dwelling place for himself here in Walter Hill, here at Powell's Chapel Baptist Church. Do we believe that? Again, let's be reminded of where we came from. We were aliens before the master, the great bricklayer, picked us one by one by one by one to build for himself a kingdom united together in the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's what I do know. It's got to happen in three ways. The first way is this. He says in verse 20 through 22. The first is it must be built on a foundation. Right? Does he not say that? I'm building for myself a temple built on what the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. What is the foundation? What did the prophets and the apostles do? They taught the word of God. Yes, Christ is our foundation, but it's got to be built on this. So I'd ask you, is your life built on this foundation? The next thing it has to do is it has to do this. As it's being built, it has to be built around and tethered to what? Christ being the cornerstone. You see, the cornerstone in a building was the, 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 the brick 
that held everything else together. Everything else was centered around the cornerstone. The cornerstone gave the level of the building. It gave the, found, the, the core thing that held us all together. So I say, is your life built on this? And is it centered and anchored to Christ Jesus? And the last one is this. He's building for himself. A temple. And he's using building blocks to do that. So I'd ask you this this morning. Are you a believer this morning? Because if you're a believer, then you're a part of the kingdom. You are a brick in the kingdom. If you do not know Christ, if you do not know Christ Jesus, you are not part of the kingdom of God. You're not part of the temple of God. You're out in a pile just, just by yourself. And God wants to build for himself a kingdom. Do you know Christ Jesus as your Savior this morning? There's no way for you to be a part of the kingdom without placing your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And so I ask us, church, are we building our lives on the foundation of the Word of God? Are we tethered to Jesus every day? And are we a part of the kingdom of God? Let us pray. God, you are unifying yourself, a people to become your temple, your dwelling place. I pray for us here at Powell's Chapel. That would be true for us. And here's what I know. Through your word, Jesus, that you're not done building your temple. Because your word says, the moment that the last brick is in place, you will return. And you have not returned, which means you are still in the work of building your temple. So God, I pray that we would believe that. And we'd be the ones that you would use to bring others into this great and marvelous grace. Into this family. You would be our King, and our Father. Continue to use this church and this community to be the salt and light that will draw others to you. God, I pray for us as a body that we would be unified. That we would all today, when we leave, be reminded of where you brought us out of. And because of that, Lord Jesus, grow us. Maybe you're here this morning. You, you, ha you don't have unity with other people in the body. You have dissension, you have hurt, you have anger. You'd rather not be placed next to this person or that person. It's not unity. And I would ask and I would beg you that this morning before you leave here, you would go and make that right. 
See, confession causes unity. So if there's dissension with anyone in the body, there's no unity in the body. Don't leave here this morning without that confession. Not to God, but to the other person. God, we are one with Christ Jesus. And God, it will take all of us in this place, every single one of us, to work in harmony and unity with one another, to present the gospel to every man, woman, and child in this community. God, if there's disunity in this place, then a lost and unbelieving world would see that and recognize it. They wouldn't be want to be tethered to us, this unity. Cause conviction in our heart, Lord Jesus. If there's any disunity in our hearts, brother, brothers and sisters in Christ, prejudices, any anything, God, that causes disunity. I pray that this morning through your spirit would bring conviction and confession and repentance and ultimately healing. I'm grateful, Jesus, for you and what you did on the cross for every one of us. That it's through your finished work that we're being unified to one another to become the temple of God where you and your Father and the Holy Spirit dwells. We are the church. Praise in the mighty name of Christ Jesus.